So we continue on through the book of 1 Peter. We are a little less than halfway through chapter 5, so a few more years and we'll have the book finished. Uh, But I digress. So while you're flipping there, we're looking at verses 5 through 7 today, which we'll read in just a moment. I'm going to read some words, so uh, something that you probably will find familiar. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Well, that's the end of Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. Now, Frost wrote that poem as a joke for his indecisive walking buddy. But there are a lot of ways to apply those lines beyond as a joke. Which way do we turn? Which way do we go when there are two paths? Well, there are only two paths to take in this life. There's the path of the world, and there's the way or the path of the Lord. You can't follow both roads at the same time. There's a low road. There's a high road. Jesus talks about the narrow gate and the wide gate. Well, the path Christians are called to is certainly the one less traveled by. The world teaches you to worry about yourself, to do what you need to get to get ahead. Self-preservation. But Scripture teaches a very different philosophy of life. Christians must concern themselves with the Lord and others and not themselves. So while a very difficult thing to do in a sinful world, the Bible reminds us that the first will be last and the last shall be first. So really, the main difference between the two paths that we're talking about is where one places their trust. The worldly path trusts only in oneself. Well, the godly path is to trust that God will take care of you. So which is the better path? Well, believer, there is only one path for you, and it is one that carries a beautiful promise as its foundation. Because God cares for you, you must trust in him. So with that intro, let's read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is an amazing thing that your word specifically says that you care for us. Sometimes that is hard for us to believe. Sometimes that's hard for us to understand. So, Lord, help us to understand that as we walk through this passage this morning. Give us of your spirit that we might grasp and feed on this word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to look at two points this morning, and both are focusing on humility. The first we're going to look at is really just looking at verse 5. It's humility before one another. So last week, the last section, we looked at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5. And that those verses talked about elders in the church. Peter commanded elders to shepherd and exercise oversight of the flock. Those who faithfully serve as, those who faithfully serve the chief shepherd as under shepherds will be rewarded by Jesus himself with an unfading crown of glory. And so as we go from that text to this passage, there are three things we need to remember. First, Peter does not give commands by themselves in a vacuum. He grounds every command in the indicatives of who God is 
and who we are as his people. Furthermore, he even gives reasons and he tells us about rewards for following the commands of Scripture. The second reason is that when Peter says likewise, he's telling us that that same pattern of command backed with reasons and rewards is coming. And third, having just talked about elders in the church, it's only natural to speak next to one of the groups that most needs to listen to those elders. So Peter addresses first those who are younger. And he gives them one simple command, be subject to the elders. Now, there are various views, believe it or not, on who these young people are. Who is Peter addressing? Well, some have argued that this refers to immature young believers. Others say it is everyone who is not in a position of church leadership. And still more argue that these young men are newer elders who need to listen to the older, more experienced elders. But the simplest and the most convincing argument is that this refers to all those in the church who are actually young, both men and women. That's just the simplest answer. And so if we consider also who the most likely ones to disobey and rebel against leadership at any level is, both the young and it's the prideful. So while young people in the church, they should be different, right? But at times they're still going to act like young people. And so it seems only natural to address the young and the headstrong next. But this command also, in a way, functions as a lesser to greater argument. If the young and the rebellious are the most likely to rebel and balk, as we know they typically are, but they are commanded to submit, what excuse does an older, more mature believer have to disobey? If even the youth are commanded and are expected to obey, the older believers are as well. But what is really going on when the young refuse to submit? When the young rebel against the leadership, what is really happening? Well, to be quite honest, it's a display of pride. It's a lack of humility. In refusing to follow those in positions of authority, the rebel believes that they know the proper way of doing things. The leader doesn't know what they're doing. Therefore, they are unworthy of my respect and obedience. Really what it is, is it's an exercise in pride and idealism. The immature want to be led when they're in the mood to be led and how they want to be led. And if in their judgment, the leader does something they disagree with, the leaders lost their confidence, possibly forever. One commentator named Daniel Doriani put it well when he said this. If we constantly judge our leaders, deciding what we do and don't like, what we will and won't heed, we aren't truly following them. True loyalty goes to the whole person in both their winsome and difficult aspects. And that is true in friendship, marriage, and the leader-follower relationship. Funnily enough, wisdom is not just required to be a church officer. We often speak of the leaders as the all-important decision makers in every area of life. And while the leaders are obviously crucial, there's another category we often leave out We need good and godly leaders, but we also need good and godly followers. And you may have heard something similar to the phrase, to be a good leader, you have to first be a good follower. And there are different variations of that phrase, but the idea behind all of them is the same. If you're not teachable, if you're not humble and submissive to your leaders, you will never make a good leader. Furthermore, you will just make life difficult for everyone in the church, including the leaders. 
So yes, we need good leaders. But without good followers, the church is in just as much trouble. So also, what the young do not realize in their rebellion, or at least oftentimes they don't realize, that they're not just rebelling against the church leadership. It doesn't stop at the man in front of them. To rebel against the leaders of the church is to rebel against Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd. Disrespect and disobedience, they don't magically stop at that person in front of you. Jesus is the shepherd of that elder just as much as he is the layperson's shepherd. So to, to rebel against Jesus' assigned leaders is really to fight against the Lord himself. So Peter, knowing what is at stake, wisely advises all who are young to submit to the elders. But it isn't just the young who need a reminder to be humble. Next, Peter commands everyone, everyone in the church, clothe yourselves with humility. Did you notice the verb Peter chose to use there? To clothe yourselves? i got a question for you. It's very serious. How many of you forgot to put on your clothes before coming to church this morning? Okay. It looks like everybody remembered. Nobody forgot to dress themselves this morning. Next question. How much time and care did you put into choosing your clothes and getting dressed for church? My guess is that you thought about it a lot. At least a little bit, right? Think about how essential it is for us to just dress ourselves each day. Because as Sam Gamgee once told Frodo Baggins, you can't go walking through Mordor and not but your skin. Embarrassing would not even begin to cover the shame if you ever left home without getting your clothes on. Oh, but how often we go out with ever putting on a hint of humility. We regularly go about our daily lives in the nakedness of pride and selfishness. And I don't feel that I'm at all exaggerating when I say that nearly all the fights and the problems we see in the church are a result of pride and selfishness. We fail to clothe ourselves with any semblance of humility, and so we're easily offended. We cannot humble ourselves, so we attack and cut at others when they make us feel threatened. How dare anyone make me feel less than the best or the most important person in the room? And rather than letting go of our idolatry and self-worship, we ignore the needs and the requests of others so that we maintain faith. How much healthier the church would be if we put the same time and effort into adorning ourselves with humility as we do just with the time we put into getting dressed each day. Can you imagine how much more effective the witness of the church would be to the unbelieving world? If we displayed a godly humility instead of fighting and insisting on our own way, our own leader, our own worship style, or even outreach strategy. The fruitfulness of the church is directly connected with our ability to admit that we are not the center of praise. We are not the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And we must train ourselves to remove ourselves from the pedestal of our hearts and to recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord instead. So for the health of the church, we must love the Lord first with our whole being. Only then can we ever be enabled to go and love and serve others as we ought. We must learn to clothe ourselves with humility every single day. From the moment you wake up till the moment you lay your head down again, you are to put on humility as carefully as you pick out your clothes for the day. And only then can the church really function as it ought to. 
another commentator named Thomas Schreiner, says that when believers recognize that they are creatures and sinners, they are less apt to be offended by others. Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. You need humility in order to love others well. Jesus says in Matthew 6 that no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. So who is your master? Is Christ truly your master? If you cannot clothe yourself with humility, then you have made yourself a God rather than Christ. And you cannot serve two masters. If Jesus is the king of your heart, then you must and you will humble yourselves in the end. Well, Peter concludes verse 5 by giving a reason for you to clothe yourselves with humility. Again, he doesn't just leave commands out there in a vacuum. He backs them. And he does so by quoting Proverbs 3. And he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, this verse cuts in two directions. Remember from the introduction that we are only two, that there are only two paths in this life. And if you insist on living for yourself and walking with the world, then God opposes you. You are on the path to condemnation. If you are not following Christ, then you are incapable of clothing yourself with true humility. Therefore, the Lord God Almighty is set against you in judgment. And it's worth noting there that the word opposes is a continuous verb. That means that the Lord is always and forever against the proud. And honestly, I can't think of a more frightening thought than to always have God opposing you. But if you insist on walking in the pride of your own self-idolatry, understand that you're walking under God's condemnation. And more than a few professing Christians over the centuries have walked in that way while claiming the path of righteousness. On the other hand, for those who humble themselves, God gives his grace. The path of faith and humility brings blessings from the Lord. And like the word opposes, gives is a continuous verb. That means God is continually and always bestowing his grace on his children. The path of pride is death, but the path of humility is life and grace from God. And so the encouragement of this verse is to clothe yourself with humility so that you may gain the blessings of God's grace in your life. So do you, do you see the inverse relationship between self-preservation and humility? It reminds me of Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 10. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will what? will find it. It is the grand irony of sin and redemption that the closer one clings to self and pride, the further away from life one truly is. On the other hand, the one who denies himself to follow Christ and to love his neighbor, he will gain life. So the one who seeks to raise himself up is cast down by God, while the one who desires to lower himself for the good of others in the gospel is raised up and honored by Christ. Jesus says that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And this theme doesn't stop in this verse in verse 5, but it continues into the next two verses as well. 
So for the sake of the church, your relationships and your own heart, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Let's move on to point two, and that's humility before God. So here we're looking at verses six through seven. So verse six marks a shift in the subject of our humility. Whereas in verse five, we were commanded to put on humility with one another. Now Peter commands us to be humble before God. In one sense, this is really the necessary implication from that Proverbs three quote. If God has the power to oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble, then it's obvious which one you need to pursue. No one wants God to be opposed to them. Therefore, you must humble yourselves. Everyone wants to be blessed by God in his abundant grace. So the obvious choice is that you must pursue humility in your life if you want grace instead of judgment. But there's also another sense to this command. Humbling yourself before God is the essential first step to being humble. Humility is not a natural character trait. It is not built into your genetic code, nor can anyone in the world on their own model true biblical humility. That raises the question, then. How can you clothe yourself with humility? Only by going straight to the source. Because true humility only comes with the understanding of who you are first, but also who you are next to the almighty God of the universe. True meekness only comes with a proper understanding that you are a finite creature under the infinite God. So it's no accident that Peter tells us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Only by understanding who God is will you ever understand who you are as his creation. You know, people are really good at faking humility. Sometimes just being quiet can lead people to calling you humble. And when I was a kid, I remember people quite often calling me humble when I'd be at wrestling practice or something else. And I always wanted to laugh in their faces, to be quite honest. Because even then, at that point with how young I was, I knew in my heart that I was not humble. I was the center of my world, and I had mile-high ego and perfectionist tendencies to match. Just because someone seems humble doesn't mean that they are. If your heart and your mind are focused on yourself and how great you are, you are not humble. On the other side of the spectrum, you have people who think of themselves as dirt. I am so worthless. I can't get anything right. Just pathetic. But the thing is, that's not humility either. Actually, that, as weird as it sounds, is a form of pride too. Because they are still focused on themselves. So if you have some grandiose idea of what you should be rather than what you are, and when you don't live up to it, you get mad, that's pride in your heart. But true humility, it does what pride cannot do. It's only as we take ourselves off of center stage that we can rightly submit ourselves to God and be humbled. Only then can we exemplify true humility. And as our vision of God and mission to others grows so will our humility along with it. And really, just as with any other sin, it is the growth of Christ-likeness in us that dispels pride and replaces it with a larger and more beautiful picture of Jesus. So Peter could have left things there. The command has been given, and we must obey, right? 
But as we've already noted, Scripture always gives you reasons and encouragement for the commands that it gives. And here, too, Peter explains a wonderful result to obeying this command. Peter says, humble yourselves so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You can spend your entire life seeking after glory and honor and praise like many of the most famous people in history did. But then one day you will die. And as you stand before the judge, you're going to realize that you chose the wrong path in life. There is a grand reversal coming for all people. But for all Christians who humble themselves now, God will glorify you. Now, there's some debate in this passage over the timing of this exaltation. When will God exalt you? Well, some say this is going to occur throughout this life, that at times in your life, God will exalt and vindicate you. Others say it's only going to occur on the last day. But I honestly don't think we have to choose one or the other, because I think both are true. Peter has reminded us repeatedly of the promises of glory that are coming. But we also saw at the end of verse 5 that God continually gives grace here in this life. God promises us grace and blessings in this life and the next. And so what you need to understand is that regardless of what position you choose there, this is not just a possible result. It's a certain result of humility. God will one day exalt you. Sometimes he exalts and vindicates believers in this life. Other times, the saints in this life see no vindication. They see neither. But what you need to know from this verse is that if you humble yourselves before the Lord, He will exalt you. If not in this life, then in the next. And there's nothing that can get in the way or hinder Him from fulfilling His promise to you. He will lift up and reward His beloved saints. Now, as we move into verse 7, The connection between verse 6 and 7 has caused confusion for many readers over the years. Some see this as an entirely new topic being presented. Others see it as a little side comment. Here Peter commands you to cast all your anxieties on him. So how did we move from talking about humility to anxiety? Well, What many may not recognize is that anxiety and pride are two forms of the same sin. Anxiety, believe it or not, is a form of pride. Therefore, Peter commands us to let go of our anxiety and cast it on the Lord. And casting our pride away is the means by which we grow in humility. That's the purpose of verse 7 here. Anxiety is fear and worry about things that we can't control. Anxiety is worrying about something you cannot control, but acting as if your worry can change the situation in front of you. And so the first way we break the back of anxiety is by recognizing that we are not in control over anything. God is the one in control, not us. We must deny that sinful tendency of our hearts to set up the illusion that we are at the center of the world and we have control over every situation. Because the truth of the matter is that you can control little to nothing around you. You can't even control your own health. But you know who does control everything around you, including your health? Jesus says in Luke 12, Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, 
Why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So from that passage, we see the second way in which we cast our anxiety away is to give our concerns and needs over to the Lord, to the one who is capable of handling them. When you take your anxiety to the Lord, you are recognizing that you are not in control, but that God is. It is a recognition of his lordship as well as a lesson in dependency upon the grace of God in your life. When you take your concerns to Jesus, you're putting those concerns in the mighty hand of God. You are totally incapable of handling any situation in your life by yourself. And you need to know that. You are a finite being in a sea of other finite beings, in a fallen world and a fallen body to top it all off. But the lies of the devil and your own pride is that if you just hang on to control, if you just hang on to that illusion, then you can determine the outcome of any given thing. But you can't. That is an outright lie from the pit of hell. Remember that the way to be exalted is not to exalt yourself, but to humble yourself under God. Then he will exalt you. So in a similar way, the path to security is not working up a facade of control. In another great irony of the gospel is the way is that the way to gain security in this life and the next is to hand it over to somebody else. Only the risen and the reigning Lord Jesus Christ can provide you with what you need. So as if all these reasons were not enough for us to humble before ourselves before God and cast our anxieties upon Him, Peter gives us one more. We can humble ourselves before Him and we can cast our anxieties on Him because He cares for you. God is not distant. God is not cold. He does not give impossible tasks, nor is He trying to break you down and destroy you. Jesus is gentle and lowly. In spirit. Isaiah 42 3 says of Jesus that a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Every command he gives to you, including the command to humble yourself and submit to him, is for your good. Even in the commands of Scripture, we can see the beauty of the gospel shining through them. Even the command to hand things over to God and stop trying to do it on your own is the beauty of the gospel shining through. Because you can't handle it, but God can. And so the love of God is displayed through his grace and kindness to us. Christian, fight pride and anxiety with hope. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Why? Peter's answer, because he cares for you. What a promise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you care for us. We know that there is nothing good in us, nothing that deserved or earned your care. There's nothing that earned your love. Yet you have bestowed it upon us. You have given it to us. And you walk with us. You tell us to to lean on you and not on our own understanding. 
to give our anxieties and concerns over to you, to let go of our pride and our control, and to give them to the one who truly will do whatever is best for our good. Lord, help us to learn that. That is not an easy thing to break, that love of self and love of control. And yet you have given us far greater promises than any hope we can ever have of holding on to things ourselves. So, Lord, teach us that humility. Teach us to rest in Christ. And this we pray in his name. Amen.